I have uh, actually, I think, preached and taught for years. Quite a few anyway, maybe a couple or three. And over and over and over and over again, we have actually talked about this topic. And and uh, all of you guys probably have talked it about amongst yourselves. And, and it even comes up in prayer. And even in our prayer session this morning, it came up. It's, it's always there because there are saved people and then there are lost people and then there are people who think they are saved and they're not. And uh, so it's a tremendous concern of God because all of the scriptures that he has of it, uh, it's definitely uh, on uh, James's mind. We know that we can be deceived, we can deceive ourselves, and it can be eternally fatal for the ones who think they're Christians and they're not. So over and over again throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament, the cry of the Spirit of God is that one should not be deceived about the reality of faith. Where are they at in the faith? James has given us a series of tests. And of course, one of them is the trials. God gives us trials. It's a test. There are also temptations because of our flesh. Uh, and in this world that we're in, because of the devil, we are tempted. And that's a test. How are we going to uh, respond to that temptation that comes to us? And we come to a really good test here. This is a very important test. The essence of faith really is how the believer behaves. His actions upon what he knows. Faith is made manifest. It's made evident in his works. Some are going to have 20-fold, some 30-fold, some 50-fold, some 100-fold. But there will be fruit uh, for every Christian. So true faith is made manifest in our behavior. James has given, a, I think, what was a brilliant illustration as we looked at it last week. So he talked about the mirror. Remember the mirror? If we wake up of a morning and we go into the bathroom and we look in the mirror and we see something that didn't look like this before we went to bed and now all of a sudden our hair is all messed up and who knows what's on our face. I don't know how anything can get that way, but sometimes you get these things on your mouth and white stuff and everything, you know. And you usually do something about it, I hope. You know, and I think I look across here today and I think everybody paid attention to the mirror and actually acted upon it. You made a decision. Now, you could have said, huh, and then walked away and come on to church like the way that you looked there, you know. And uh, um, that, that probably wouldn't be too cool if you did that every day and went to work like that, right? Well, um, and we know there are people that will will uh, you know act upon that spiritually. That is what the Word of God is. We look at the Word, and when we have read it or we've heard it taught, we've heard it preached, then it means to do something about it now. Don't wait till later. You say, oh, I'll do it later. You see the mirror. You're right there. All you have to do is splash some water on your face, grab a rag or whatever you know, and you know maybe a comb or something, and then and you do it. Um, well, the same way it is with spiritually. If you don't do it, you, you see something in the Word and you go, oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, uh, I hear that. I, I know about that. And if you, don't, if you walk away and you, you don't do what you just saw, you're a forgetful hearer. You're a hearer only and not a doer, right? So that's really what um, is the illustration with that mirror. I think it is so beautiful the way that it, it's brought forth. And so when the believer is confronted with his sin, he sees it, 
He wants to do something about it. He repents and he comes running to the cross, right? And he knows the forgiveness. At the same time, he wants his life changed. That's an ongoing lifestyle of a Christian. He keeps changing. We're not perfect. We have so many wrinkles that have to be taken out, don't we? So many spots. You know, there there are really, uh, I think, two kinds of, of things that we see. We, we see our own filthy garments and, and we see the spots, the stains on our life. And we actually don't like it. Matter of fact, we even hate it. And we rely upon the Lord to do something about that. And then also when we look into the mirror of the Word of God, we see the face of Jesus Christ. And we see Him at the cross. And we see with the crown that is upon Him, that thorn crown brow and such, the Christ at the cross. We see the Savior and we see the blood. There's nothing but the blood of Jesus, right? Uh, we see that blood and that it cleanses us from all of our sin. And so we look at that. We see our sin, but we see Jesus Christ. And so we see that something can be done about it because Christ has done the work, and so we rely upon that. So there's really a difference between the hearer only and the doer, isn't there? And James is concerned about that. I think it's easy for people to go around saying they're believers, but they have a responsibility to live in obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, right? Uh, but you know what? There's going to be a lot of people who say they're Christians, but once they hear something like this, they run because they want to master their own destiny that they live in. They have their own way of living and they don't want anybody, anything like the Word of God, coming in and changing them because they rather like what they do. If you're born again, you have new desires. You have new patterns in your life. You have a new man in you. A new woman. There's a new person there. And you have different acts that you now do. So, you know, one can look really good, be very good, be very religious, but he may not even know the Lord. We know that. That's nothing new, is it? We we know plenty of people that might be related to us, that our hearts cry out for them because they they say they're Christians, might even go to church, but uh, there is nothing there. They're empty. So we're going to look at this section today, these uh, two verses, and we're going to deal with three aspects of what true religion is. We're entitling this true religion. I think this is an incredible test. I think it's very sufficient in examining one. It uh, it doesn't run the gamut of of everything, um, uh, but I believe it is definitely a great test to see uh, where one can be. So let's, uh, let's take our Bibles. Let's stand... Let's read James 1, the last two verses of chapter 1. We've now come to the conclusion of this first chapter. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Father, we thank You for Your Word. It is the truth. Help us to learn about what true religion is. Help us to not only get it mentally, but also to be able to put it into action. Help us to be able to put Your Word into doing. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Verse 26 we go to the, uh, these are the three aspects. The first one here is a controlled tongue. And then we see a compassionate heart. Then we see a clean life. 
that are the, the three points that uh, we can see that James <coughs> can break this down. He says, uh, if there any is anyone thinks himself, or if there be any man among you, or, or it seems, it, it's dealing with has the opinion that he's religious. If there's anybody here that he's saying that thinks he's religious, has the opinion that he's religious. Uh, it's a personal opinion. It's a subjective type mental opinion that is implied by the word seems or thinks himself. It's opinion of himself that he's religious. He's a religious person. And so, and, and uh, that's what uh, James starts with. The word uh, religious or religion, you'll get it another time in the very next verse, undefiled religion, uh, is a word that is not frequently used in the Bible. You would think it would be. It's a good word. It's not necessarily bad. Uh, but in this case, you can see how uh, James is using it. And it is really uh, James using this in a way that uh, is addressing the man who prides himself in all the outward trappings of the faith. But there's no application that is really put into his heart. There's nothing in the heart, but he does things like praying and fasting and tithing and going to church, going through all the rituals that uh, that you can have at church. Those things cannot necessarily be wrong, but if that's what they're relying on, we know that that's, uh, that's empty. And he starts off with, about bridling the tongue. James says this man deceives his own heart and his religion is worthless as he says, and yet does not bridle his tongue. So he starts off with the tongue. This is just a brief point that he makes and then by the time he gets into chapter 3, he elaborates on the tongue. And that's about talking, speaking. It's a thing that we do so often. And it has been said that you do enough talking during a day. There are some people that probably stretch this out much further. But you have enough talking. If it was written down, it could uh, fill out a 56-page booklet. That's how much talking you do during during the day. That's quite incredible, isn't it? And uh, so um, the, the tongue does play a big part. And, of course, that's what James really hits on here. He really sees that. does not bridle his tongue or tighten the rein. Um, the idea of religion, though, here is external religious rituals, liturgy, ceremonies. You get the idea there, right? And so that's what James uses. Now, Paul used that word, too, the word religion, in Acts 26. He's telling his testimony. Acts 26, verse 5. He used to be a very religious person, didn't he? Paul, we know, was very religious, very devout. And he uh, even admitted it. He says, since they have known about me for a long time, if they're willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion, to the very ultimate Pharisee, Pharisee of Pharisees, is religion according to our religion, that sect of our religion. And and, uh, here it's dealing with all the things that go with this, the pomp and the circumstance, the external, the rituals, the liturgies, the ceremonies, everything. And so uh, one can attend church services and follow all the the ceremonies, the prayers, the, the readings of the Word, have the right theology. But as good as these things are, James is saying they have no value at all. Matter of fact, it can be uh, really bad for you because the more that you 
be around this, the more you think and deceive yourself so that, that you can be right on with it. But that not be. There's another word for religion, and it's eusebia. And it's dealing with godliness, holiness, that kind of thought. Now that is a, a religion word that we all would identify with. This is dealing with absolute right worship. This would be what we want to pursue. We want to pursue godliness, right? We want to pursue holiness. If you're a Christian, that is what you do. You pursue these things. So in these two verses, James is going to produce for us this definition of what true religion is in a, in a, in a short amount of time. It's a good framework. I do want to say it's not all comprehensive. It's not. This is how you can define it, and, and you look at this, where you visit orphans, and uh, you bridle your tongue, and, and you have a holy life. Uh, you, that's why we have so many different books of the Bible to read, and we can expound on different things and go to different verses and, and uh, different texts of Scripture to support that and to give it a well-rounded view. That's why reading the Word should never, ever get boring to us because there's so much here. Uh, so there are a lot of people who have their own opinion of being religious, right? You guys all would agree with that. They're not really conscious hypocrites. You'd say, well, they're, they're hypocrites is really what they are. But they, do they know that? Say, I'm going to be a, a hypocrite today. I am going to be as much as a hypocrite as I can be. That means to act, to put on an act. It was dealing with actors, hypocrites, hypocrites, and they were ones who wore a mask. They did something that they really weren't. They put on a face that who that they really are not that person. That was uh, an actor back at that time. So, um, but people aren't that way. You don't have people coming in here to just say, "I'm a phony." <laughs> you know, I'm going to be a phony from here on out. They're self-deceived. They deceive themselves here. So they don't bridle your tongue. You deceive your own heart. Um, and so you say, okay, what does bridle the tongue mean? And I immediately have to look over at Debbie because Debbie still has horses. And uh, no, do you have, still have horses, right? Oh, yeah. Amongst many other <laughs> goats and on and on, right? But the horses have a bridle, right? Do you still use a bridle once in a while? You know, but the, you know we're dealing with the reins. We're, we're talking about control. James will use that again in, in James three, and it's, it's a good way to illustrate that. If you don't have that, then you're not going to have control of, of that that horse. And uh, so um, that's kind of the thought that James is is using. Keep a, a tight rein on this. Bridle your tongue. Out of a bitter fountain comes bitter water. Right. And so now what we're dealing with, the tongue really gets from the depth of what the heart is about. All the tongue does is identify who you really are, what you think, what you do. The Word reveals what's deep inside. And all you have to do is listen to somebody for a few moments. And you know, most of the time, you can pretty well tell if they're a believer or an unbeliever. It's pretty quick to tell if somebody's an unbeliever and they need the Lord, and so therefore that's why you know we can make judgments. That's 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 truly that's right. We are to judge people <coughs> because if we don't judge that, if they're not believers, unbelievers, they say, oh, "I don't believe in God." You can say, "Yeah, but I think really they're Christians." They're, they're <laughs> I mean, that's not. I mean, that is lunacy. You know, that's that's stupidity. Now, I question: Are you a Christian yourself? You know, you're saved only by Christ. Oh, right. Um, 
So we do. We make judgments all the time. How are we going to know how to witness to people if we don't judge whether they're Christians or not? And if they're a Christian, or they say they are, but yet they're doing something that really doesn't line up with what they're doing, then um, you know, trying to be really careful, we still have to use a judgment there too. You know, okay, they're doing this, and boy, that is not what I can identify with Christianity. We still are making a judgment, aren't we? We, we have to do that. We make judgments all day long. And, but the tongue can reveal your heart. Now, in Matthew 12, verse 34 through 37, this is something that Jesus used. And um, how often do we come across this statement? Because it's dealing with trueness. If, if one is really a, a true believer, this is where uh, it is at. In verse 34, you, uh, matter of fact, he talks about the, the, the bad tree and the, the fruit will be bad and the, the tree is known by its fruit. And then he says, you brood of vipers. And he's talking about the religious people here. And he calls them uh, sons of snakes. That's really what he's calling them. How can you, being evil, and I wouldn't go around recommending Jesus can do this because He knows what's in their heart. And we don't always know what's in people's hearts. So we have to be really careful in our judgments. And then we have to use our tongue correctly in what we say to them. We always want to use politeness and being very careful and using Scripture in the right way not to attack somebody. But here Jesus knows that. He knows the heart. He says, how can you being evil speak what is good? How can you even speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The mouth is going to speak what is really inside. That we can't see. The heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? That's why I say psychologists cannot get into the heart of mankind and solve anything. They can't know it. They can have an idea, there are principles, there are actually principles out of the the Word of God that psychologists, psychiatrists can actually use. But to come up with their own techniques out of, away from what Scripture is, and to come up with knowing what's really in the heart, what's in the heart is evil. You know, And, and so therefore, he says, the good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. He's going to bring out of that heart that God has transformed, and he's going to bring out of there, and it's going to be good. And the evil man brings out of his evil treasure. Good fruit, good fruit, bad fruit. Bad tree, bad fruit. Good tree, good fruit. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for in it in the day of judgment. That's Jesus speaking. That's pretty pretty upfront. For if by your words you will be justified... And by your words you will be condemned. Now I know that sounds different from a lot of the rest of Scripture when, whenever we um, um, actually said those statements this morning that we're justified by faith alone. And here it says, oh, it's by, by what your words you're justified. Well, the, what he's really hitting on here is your words come out of what the heart is and it shows whether you're his or not. It can be. You'll be condemned. So, you know, boy, that, that's a judgment passage that Jesus uses here. And it's rather it's harsh, it sounds like. But he's speaking to religious people. And if he doesn't give the truth to these religious people, they're never going to wake up. And there had to be some that woke up because there were probably some just like Paul 
We know what Paul did before he's a Christian, as he was very religious. But um, if the tongue is not controlled, the heart is not transformed. James explains that the heart here is seen in, in the tongue. Alec Motyer wrote this, commentating on this Matthew 12. The tongue and the heart are linked so that the tongue is an accurate index of what we are at the core of our persons. The tongue is an accurate index. It's the gauge. It shows the core of a person. So, um, the reason some have out-of-control tongues is because why? They have out-of-control hearts. To continue to claiming to know God and at the same time having a tongue that is absolutely unbridled gives evidence of self-deception. And that's what James is talking about here. If he doesn't bridle his tongue, he diseases his own heart. Uh, John Calvin, commenting on this, uh, says what James has most in mind is the uncontrolled, slanderous, tongue-carping, critical judgment. If one really has a critical judgment of people, and they do that constantly and they slander, it's an unbridled tongue. So Calvin goes on, he says, uh, when people shed their grosser sins, they are extremely vulnerable to contract this complaint. He says, a man will steer clear of adultery. Nobody's going to see that because he's not going to practice that outwardly. Of stealing, of drunkenness. He doesn't steal. He doesn't get drunk. Outwardly, it looks like he obeys the Ten Commandments. In fact, he will be a shining light of outward religious observance and yet will revel in destroying the character of others under the pretext of zeal. But it is a lust for vilification of people. Oh, the lust of slander, isn't it? When we talk about others, uh, having a a bloated, pharisaical pride, as he says here, uh, Calvin does. It's a smear. It's a censoring people. The lust of slander. You know, and and I think, really, if we were to look at our hearts, we're still battling as we're in the flesh. We still battle with things that our tongue can do. Um, How about... I just I love to sing praises to God. And in James 3 it says, at the same time while we're praising God, we can also use that tongue for whatever, like slandering, right? Uh, I love to do the response of readings, but I gossip when it's over. I preach sermons and encourage others, but the same tongue puts people down. Well, it's a, it, this is a challenging thing when you really get into it. In person, oh, I don't talk about others. I don't think ill of others. Now, and we can even go go to the heart. You know, and say, well, I don't, you know, say it about them. But yeah, I think about it sometimes. And that's what Jesus really hits at, right? Um, when we look at Scripture, we start really seeing ourselves, and He rightly divides it. I mean, we are to rightly divide the Word as He rightly divides us. He starts pointing out things that you think, well, that's not me, that's not me. You can look at the commands and say, I don't, you know, look, I, I do all those, I do this, I'm okay, I, I never sin. Oh, well, I, I know I sin, but I, I don't know what they are, you know. And we really start looking at it 
really being honest, we look into the Bible. You know, actually the Bible looks into us. Goes right in. It's like a knife starts cutting. It's like a CAT scan. (laughs) It shows things that are there that we really wouldn't ever really want to know, but we better know. Or an MRI. I'm, I'm amazed all the things those things can show up. You know, and so the Bible can show everything. And we have no place to hide. We can't run from God. Isaiah 6 said, and this is Isaiah said in chapter 6, that he was a man of unclean lips amongst a people of unclean lips. This is Isaiah. This is the man of God. God uses to give one of the greatest prophecy books in all the Old Testament, the most messianic that there is. And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. A man who would truly be a religious man who was really desiring to pursue godliness and holiness. And yet he recognized it deep down whenever he saw the holiness of God. He recognized, oh, I haven't arrived yet. It's not just my nation. Look, I live, I have been influenced by this nation, this country that I've lived in. I've been influenced by it, but it's my problem, it's my flesh. So here's a person who is liturgically, outwardly religious, but a tongue that reveals an unholy heart. And, you know, you can tell about a person what they say if you just listen long enough. And sometimes some things that spew out of people's everyday language. It's almost like every other word that is just nasty, filthy. And it's almost you feel like you've been in a cesspool, a sewer or something. It's almost like stinking words come out of their mouth. And it's not because their breath is bad. (laughs) But it's because it's coming from a rotten, stinking heart. And so, you know, we can tell those kind of things, but, you know, one-fifth of your entire life you will spend talking. Uh, They come up with these percentage figures. I'm just saying what, you know, just that's pretty frightening. 20% of your time is spent in, in talking. So if the tongue is not controlled by God, who's it controlled by? And anything that we do outside of what, God desires and what He does, this tongue really can be an indicator that our heart is not very good. What does your tongue indicate about the control of your religion? The control of your uh, your ideas, your, your way of life, right? It deceives our own heart. So He does so by uh, embracing... All of the outward claims that one has, all the doctrines of Christianity, and they can be right on, but yet not have an inward transformation. You know, somebody can know the right words to say. They understand what it's saying and they stand when they're supposed to stand and they sit when they're supposed to sit and they're giving regularly to Christian work but one's religion can be worthless, as he says here. Matthias, 
accomplished nothing is what that means. Religion that does not transform the heart accomplishes absolutely nothing. It is nothing at all. It is in vain. It's worthless. It's empty. Well, there's part one dealing with the tongue. I'm ready to move on. (laughs) I do tell you, I've been having to deal with this passage all week. And it's really convicting, these two verses. So I'm just trying to pass it on to you. (laughs) But you're rejoicing in this, right? A compassionate heart. Pure and undefiled religion. He's talked about this worthless religion. Now he talks about this religion that is true. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. And James comes up with this. Here's what it is. To visit orphans and widows in their distress. Boom. Now James is rather uh, almost abrupt on everything. Boom, boom. He doesn't give a whole lot of explanations on that. He just says it and then he moves on. And that's what he's doing in this chapter 1 all the way through. And that's why sometimes it seems like, oh, he hits and misses with this and this and this. These are nice little thoughts. He's just throwing them out there. Oh, I thought of this thing and boom, you know. But have you noticed how they all really do tie together? God is a God of order. And it's never disorder. It's never confusion. And so when you put it together with everything else, you say, oh, well, all of this does really just hit right with it. He's not, he said, okay, hey, oh, about bridling your tongue. Oh, by the way, you need to be a good person. Um, you need to visit orphans, uh, you know, and the widows. You need to do that. And, and, and he is saying that. But one we want to concentrate on here is pure and undefiled religion, and we'll come back to that, meaning that, in the sight of God our Father, God and Father, I like that. He mentions Father. Father. Now, he's the Father in one sense of all the you know the people that you know that he gave life to. In that sense, that's a general sense. But really, he's the Father of his own children, the ones who are believers, and that's really the meaning of God the Father. Um, but he he did uh, you know he did create and in, in all that. But uh, I don't believe in the universal fatherhood of God. Uh, not at all. That that would mean everybody is going to be saved, and we know that can't be right. We are to bear the family resemblance. Here's the Father, and He wants us to be His image here on this earth. And you can see that individually, and you can see it in a family. You see, in the triune God, you have perfect unity in the Trinity. Isn't it beautiful? And they have never disagreed, never been angry with another member of the Trinity ever. God does not get mad at Himself. (laughs) Perfect. And here He mentions the Father. We are to be like God. We're to be like His Son. We are being conformed into the very image of the Son. Right now, if you're listening to the Word and then you're looking in the mirror and you're saying, God, change me. You know what? He's changing you right now. You are becoming more like Christ. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 mentions that fact 
of where we are to, uh, I said Ephesians, it, it's actually Romans, isn't it? Okay. Romans chapter 8 uh, that I was thinking of, sorry there. Um, being conformed, and of course other passages, you know, conformed to the image of Christ, that's, that's what it's about here. To, to, to look like Him, we need to be concerned about people in need, Right? To look like Christ, we have to be concerned about those people in need. We are to reflect the Father. The Father cares about us, doesn't He? When the people of God do what the Bible says, and they go to the helpless, then God is visiting them with compassion. He uses people, He uses us, to go to people who are in need so that they get the compassion and that is how they actually are visited by God. Now, we are not God, but He lives in us. So as we go to people, they can see what God looks like, and not even know it at the time, but they have a compassion that they cannot explain. Some people are drawn to Christ for the fact that people resembled Christ so much that they couldn't help it. And they said, they've got something that I don't. How many times have you heard that? There's that uh, one movie that's out there, that football movie, I forget what the name of it is. Woodlawn. Woodlawn. And that's what the coach said. He recognized some of the the players that they had something that he didn't. How many times have you heard that? Have you heard that from people? I sure have. It's good to hear, isn't it? Um, These people are looking, it's tangible. A tangible compassion. So, what does that say about us, right? Um, in contrast to this worthless religion in verse 26, 27 here is giving us uh, practical examples uh, of what it is. Uh, these two examples uh, really represent pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God our Father. So James says that uh, to contrast it with the outward religion of the man who is doing it to be noticed by other men and, and himself to feel good, he's saying there is one that is a true religion. It is um, pure and undefiled. Pure is catharsis. Or you've heard of a catharsis. A cleaning out. It's pure. It's cleanliness. A clean life, right? So a, a true religion has a clean life. And then undefiled is amiantos. It means to be undefiled. It means the freedom from being contaminated. Pure and uncontaminated. And so, um, we, we take that kind of pure uncontamination and yet we live in this world and we take it in even to a contaminated society and yet we see that um, we are to be pure in the sight of God our Father. A father of the fatherless Father of the widows. Turn to Psalm 68, verse 5. What a God we have. When Jesus said to the Israelites, He said to the disciples, here's how I want you to pray. Our Father. And I'm sure they're going, whoa, wait a minute. This, I don't know, I have a lot of trouble with that. Our Father, you know, we got to be careful. We call Him, you know, uh, holiness here, and Him to be our Father. That's they didn't call Him that. 
But now he's saying, here's how I want you to pray. I want you to start with our Father. You can go to Him as a Father. And I know a lot of you can say, you know, I don't really know what a Father's like. Because I really didn't have a Father. And my Father really wasn't around. When He was, I uh, I didn't want to be around Him. And I know, and you say, you're, you're picking on me here. No, no, no. I, there are a lot in here. I say this, and, and whenever I say a lot, I'm, I'm talking about a good percentage. A percentage that come from that background. Now, I had a really good father who gave me the example of what a father is to be. I thank the Lord for that, and there are people here who have had that kind of father. Others haven't. So when you look at God the Father, you can say, okay, well, I didn't have an earthly father, but look at the concern that this Father has for me. He has my best interest in sight in every little detail. He really does care, and He can go, you can take it all the way back to even when you're a child and you might have been beaten, you might have had other things happen to you that were despicable. And yet at the same time, God has even used that. Not that He desires sin for it to happen on us, but yet He uses that to make you trust in Him, whatever it takes. And so you can look back at it and say, God, I know it was a tough life that I had, but thank You for being there. I wasn't a believer at the time, but all along You were always there. And You did bring some people along, even during that time. And as I grew up, there was always somebody, people praying for me. He's a great Father, isn't He? And even earthly fathers who are good fathers can even let us down because they're still people. I'm so thankful that uh, that a father, I can identify how he gave a picture of the way that the Father in Heaven is. Although he is not my heavenly father. Psalm 68.5 So thankful for my heavenly father. And here's what he does with people who have really a tough life. Verse 5, A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows. He's for the widows. And he will make sure that the judgments will come out correctly. You see, society might look like they care for these people, but they can't. They can only do so much. And here we know that God takes care of the ones who don't have fathers or who don't have their spouses anymore. He takes care of them. He has a special concern for these people. And so uh, we can take that literally. Now, he uses the word visit here in our James passage. Oh, the time is flying. Do you know what? It is 12.32. And you guys are still sitting out there. Oh, 38 minutes. I'm okay. Did we start late today? <laughs> I haven't changed my watch yet. That's okay. I feel like I'm, I've gained time. I'm going to shift it back. I go like that for months sometimes. So what time is it? Oh, then I have to think. Okay, what does James say here? Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. To visit. Visit. I like that word. You know, I like visitors. Now, some people don't like visitors because they don't like to be surprised. You know. and, and even more, I think we have become a society where we're afraid to visit people because we're afraid we are going to 
come in on them when they're not ready and that might make them upset. And I think that's what our society has gotten to be. As a matter of fact, we, we text and we leave messages and now we, we don't talk to each other much. And so visiting is a real thing. Visiting is talking about when you, when you go and, and you visit people, but it's more than that. It's more than just a social call here. It includes that, and that is a good thing. I remember my mom and dad, and their people would come over, and, and uh, a lot of times they didn't even give a call. You say, well, they didn't have phones back then. <laughs> well, they had these things, you know, where you put your finger in and you go like this. <laughs> Actually, Zach saw one of those over at his grandma's. It was still there. He, he said, what is this? You know, it's tech, technology is this. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, they had phones, but a lot of times people just drop in. And, uh, you know, usually my mom would like to, you know, get things, you know, cleaned up real quick just in case somebody comes in. They're always thinking about that. But yet, um, that was Okay. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to make it cool whenever the pastor drops over at your house and, you know, he doesn't give you a call beforehand. Now, I probably wouldn't do that. But if I happen to be in the area, I might just drop in. I have done that before. And uh, I'm not so sure if it was a great idea. Because they just weren't ready. And I didn't even know I was ready either. Overseer. It's dealing with an overseer almost. It's visiting. It's it's describing the work of elders visiting. Wow. It means to look out for, to care for, to be really concerned about. Now the word visit really takes on a a much more uh, of a powerful meaning, doesn't it? It's talking about visiting orphans and widows, not just going to their house, or giving them a call up first and seeing if it's okay and then going there. <laughs> um, it's a concern. Um, it's a dealing with nurture, care, to take the focus off yourself and go focusing upon their needs. And by the way, there's really going to be no payback. You're probably not going to get anything about it. As a matter of fact, it might take money. It might take a lot of effort. Uh, In that society, there were people that were poor, and I'm talking about really poor. I'm talking about they didn't have a house, they didn't have, they didn't own anything. They might all the clothes they owned was what they wore on their back, and that was it. And they were not even able to work. Might have been because of physical aspects, maybe maybe mental things, and yet their needs are there. And here's where the golden rule comes in, right? And and you really do it. To please God. That's really what it's about. Even though you may not even feel like doing it, you know that that's the right thing. And so God's Word takes root in our hearts and we start doing things that uh, we wouldn't ordinarily do. We start taking our thoughts off ourselves and we take our thoughts to others and the needs that they're in. Good intentions sometimes can be really good, but if we don't follow through with the good intentions, it really means nothing. You know, how many times have you thought, well, I'd really like to do that. I need to do that. I'm going to do that. Have you ever said that? Has it ever made you feel guilty when, you know, you, did, you didn't do it and you really meant it, but you didn't do it? I'd like to, and you forget about it. It's like the mirror happens again. So, oh no! I saw the mirror there and what I was supposed to do and I didn't do it. What it means is put it on your schedule. 
You're going to visit. You, you put it on your schedule. This is what I'm going to do. But it's really even easier to say, hey, I want to go see say so-and-so and I want to encourage him in his faith. Great thought. But if I don't put it on my schedule, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's just going to be totally empty. Um, we don't have a lot of spontaneous free time. To be real honest with you, we always fight for time. We actually have some extra time, but sometimes it seems like we have no time at all. And so, anyway, it's dealing with concern. Um, let's look. Let's look at uh, Matthew twenty-five. And we're at verse uh, 35. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you, what? Visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did you see a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. So really, we are doing it to the person of Christ. And so when we visit others, actually we're also visiting Christ, or He's visiting them too. And you pull that all the way around mind. By the way, when it said sick, and there's been quite a few of us have been sick that are getting over it, have been, but when they're really sick, you may not want to go and, and visit at that time. <laughs> Sometimes a good phone call will uh, will do because we don't want to spread it, but you get the idea, right? Um, that's what Jesus is talking about. That that's the word visit. That that's a thought. That's talking about care, really caring. You know, really you know having oversight over them in that in that sense. Um, in Luke one sixty eight, this uh, is Zacharias who is giving a prophecy of John the Baptist's ministry. His son. He says in 68, Be the... Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited us and accomplished redemption for His people. He has visited us. Lord God. Now, according to Luke 1 we see that that's a prophecy. And Christ isn't even born. The God that he's talking about is the one who, of course, it's God the Father, but yet, literally, Jesus Christ is going to come to visit the earth, to come to this world and visit, to be concerned about His people who are in great need, need to get their sin forgiven. He visited. But He really did literally come to this earth and visit. But it was much more than coming here to earth and going, whoa, 
I'm out of here. <laughs> the stench. Sin. But yet He came here to accomplish redemption for us. His purpose was perfect. And then you can look at verse 78, same chapter. Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. The sunrise on high, I'll give you one guess. Christ. He's going to visit. He's going to come. And man, did He come and visit. And He healed people. And He healed people. Healed people. Cast out demons. Healed more people. Gave the Gospel. He shone upon this dark world, didn't He? Uh, this light came and visited us. You know, they talk about aliens and movies and stuff. They don't know how close they really are. You know, he just happens to be an alien to them. He's no longer to us. He's not a foreigner. But uh, he came and visited us. How many movies do you see where they love to have aliens come to this earth? They still say that there's something out there. There is life outside this planet. And in our own universe somewhere... And we can say, yeah, you're right. Can I tell you about him? I can tell you about this one who is one you don't know about. Would you let me take some time? In chapter 7, verse 16. Fear gripped them all and began glorifying God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited His people. A centurion's servant was healed there. And then we see this statement. Of course, that went all over Judea, all the surrounding district. A great prophet has risen among us and God has visited us. He really cares, has great concern. Look in Hebrews, in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6. But one has testified somewhere saying, What is man? Here we go. That you remember him, or the Son of Man, that you are concerned about him. What is the Son of Man? That you are you visited him. There an accurate translation is concerned. He has great concern for us. And so, to neglect the widows and the orphans is not having concern for them. Matter of fact, it was a breach of the law according to the law. And if we were to go back to the Old Testament, we would see a number of texts that talk about this. James definitely talks about this. And in Timothy, uh, Paul talks about it other places. But let's go back just to the law just for a moment. And um, we're going to have to wrap this up pretty quick here. Deuteronomy chapter 14, 28 and 29. I'm just going to use this Deuteronomy passage, but there are many others in Deuteronomy. Uh, at verse 29, At the end of every third year, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year and shall deposit it in your town. Every third year. One year, two years, three years, four, five, six. And then you have the, the seventh year, the sabbatical year. Um, the Levite. That's the one who does the ministry in 
for their worship because he has no portion or inheritance among you. He, he has no land there that he can call his own. He's provided for. But uh, And the alien, the orphan, and the widow who are in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that the Lord your God might bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. You give food to them. There's always going to be... Uh, Orphans. There's going to be widows. There's going to be the poor, Jesus said. You're always going to have them. But I provided a way. And that's what He did. And sure, the state helps, takes care, but the church is to be doing that too, if all possible. Or anytime we see an opportunity. Um, my, we have texts all over the place. Uh, the one who owns land and has fruit, what he is supposed to do is he, he takes... Um, his fruit of the land, after he's done that, there's still going to be some left. It's for gleaning. And that was for people who were the poor to come along and be able to get their fruit or the, the crops, uh, what, whatever they would have. And, of course, Ruth, we remember uh, in that story, that's what uh, she did. God already had uh, a way made for that. Uh, today, he still has that. He works through people. He works through unbelievers. You know, a government can be good in handing that out. But still, yet the church is to have care for these people and to show mercy towards others. That, that's a heart religion. Now, the third one here, the last one here, is a clean life. And he says that not only are they to visit orphans and widows in their distress, as you go out into the world even, you're going to go into a stained world who people who have needs. And it's going to be ugly in this world. It's a sinful world. And he says, and to keep one oneself unstained by the world. As you help people, as you serve people, there can be a staining presence there and keep yourself unstained. True godliness is expressed in our inner life and also in our outward practical compassion. So he draws upon where he's been about the compassion, having that inward life, we are to identify with society. A lost society, when it has need, we are still to be there. And why has America been caring for the needy and done that for all these years? You know where it started? It started from the church. You look at the hospitals. Where did they come from? The church did it. Um, Even the, the, uh, the universities, the colleges, where did they all start? came from the church. Of course, we know now. Now see that um, you get the sinful world in the things of the church, and then all of a sudden it doesn't become part of the church anymore, and um, so so it goes. But um, unstained, unspotted. Ephesians five twenty seven talks about the bride and uh, the the husband and the wife, and he takes that to the best illustration, which is. We are the bride of Christ. And Christ is the one who keeps us spotless, undefiled. Just like the husband, a Christian husband, is to keep his wife spotless and undefiled. Christ does that for the church, doesn't He? And um, there are other passages I thought were really good, but I don't have time to go to them. But you probably see them in your bulletin there or up on the screen. First uh, Peter and Second Peter and Acts and... 1 Corinthians and, and such. Keep yourself unspotted. He says, continually keep yourself unspotted, unblemished, unstained. You're not to embrace the world's goals and all the priorities and all the temporal values that the world has. Don't embrace those things. 
Uh, it mocks God and mocks His Word. To be more specific, we have the world knocking at our door, knocking inside our doors all the time. The, the media, and I'm not giving any... Uh, saying that you shouldn't use any media. That, that involves computers now and, of course, our phones. It's around us all the time. We have to be very careful. Help me use this instrument rightly, Lord, for I know in this instrument is something that can be used very evil also. And uh, we, we can, you have to be careful about what we watch, what we hear. Uh, we can think of the TV. We can think of the movies. We can think of, of anything that's put out in mass media. There are things that we can have fun with or just to enjoy and or just for our own own pleasure and whatever but some of those things if they're coming from an unbelieving world what would you expect ultimately it's going to go much further than where you want you have to know where to draw that line because it can take you down where you didn't intend to go so be careful what the world is offering us it can be very tempting it can be something that we would really like to get into and I really enjoy it and this is part of my life be careful how far you go. So uh, avoid anything that will take you um, to a place that, that you don't want. Keep yourself unstained by the world. Keep yourself holy. The, when he says world, it's cosmos. It's an evil system. It's an evil system under Satan's dominion. And that's an evil system that is opposed to God. And you can think of the culture, the lifestyle that's out there. The stuff of this world is unbelievable sometimes. Its philosophy that, that it has is always going to go against God. The morality that it has always goes against God. Doesn't it? You, you've seen it happen right before your eyes. The ethics that uh, this country used to have has all gone another way, or is going another way. As God's people, as we live in this world... We are not to say, I'm going to get out of the world somehow and go be a monk. Uh, But uh, Jesus Jesus said that we are to be in the world, but not of it. You have to be careful of that. But John 17, he gave a prayer for the disciples and all the believers of all time. And this is the one verse I'm going to use here about, about the world. John 17, starting at verse 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, There's a reason why we're here. But to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world, but we're in it. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And we're sanctified in that even when we're in a really filthy world. Pure religion, and I tie this up with this, belongs to people who show an inner control manifested by their tongue, the speech, that's where we started at, right? Who shows a love for people who are in need and who stay away from things that can stain them, the things that come from our culture, buying into the satanic philosophy that's in this world. And that's how a Christian lives. And so we want to apply this. Somebody could say, that's a wonderful sermon. Like the lady said one time, this was just wonderful, Pastor. Everything you said applies to someone I know. (laughs) It applies to ourselves, doesn't it? Do you want God's blessing in your life? James says here, if we're an effectual doer, we will be blessed by God. How do I see myself as a Christian? How do I relate to others as far as Christian love is concerned? How is my attitude as far as the world is concerned? Let's pray. 
Father, we thank You for Your Word, Your truth. We are sanctified by that. Help us to be the kind of Christians that You want us to be. We need Your help desperately in the times and the place that we live in. And we know that You have already delivered us from sin, but keep us holy and undefiled from the sin that wants to tempt us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.